the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. In the wake of the Great Recession, cities in particular have had a hard time rebounding and helping their residents recover from the trauma of loss, economic, social, and cultural. Stanford Law Professor Michelle Wild Anderson takes a look at four such cities in her book, The Fight to Save the Town, and unearths what troubles they continue to have. We're going to talk about what she found, and especially what she found in one of the four cities she chose, Detroit. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Today and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Go back just a few years, 10 or 15, and think about all the things that were disrupted in our lives, at least economically, by the Great Recession. We saw all kinds of foreclosures happen. We saw all kinds of people losing their jobs. And we saw cities like Detroit really transform from places of opportunity and economic activity to absolute struggle, struggle on a scale that we really hadn't seen before. And the truth is, for a lot of us, that Great Recession, the effects of that Great Recession, are still with us. There are a lot of cities and towns across America that are still really struggling. Millions of people still don't have access to good-paying, stable jobs. They don't have any guarantees for things like health care or housing. They're living day-to-day, paycheck-to-paycheck, just trying to balance the uncertainties that surround them. This is where the book, The Fight to Save the Town, takes us. In it, author Stanford Law Professor Michelle Wilde Anderson focuses on how very four very different cities in America are all struggling in similar ways. They're all municipalities that don't have enough money, don't generate enough revenue to ensure that their residents can be well served. Now, notably, Anderson also surveys the ingenuity that's arising in these cities. She looks at how people are reimagining and reconstructing more benevolent and beautiful places and practices and policies where punitive ones previously existed. And really importantly, at least for us, she also takes a specific look at Detroit, both why it lost so much money and so many people, and how we're trying to reverse that trend. So how is this rebuilding process going for municipalities that struggle with tax base and revenue? What are they doing differently to rebuild themselves? Why did they lose so much in the first place? And what can they do to ensure a sense of stability and opportunity in the future for their residents? That's where we begin the conversation today. And to discuss all of it, we have Michelle Wild Anderson here with us. Michelle, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, thanks so much, Stephen. I'm delighted to be here. I've been reading your work for years. So oh, this is a oh, great thank opportunity. You. <laughs> I'm very excited to talk to you about this book. Um, so as I said, it's about four towns, Stockton, California, Josephine County, Oregon, Lawrence, Massachusetts, and of course, Detroit and how they're all struggling to get by and improve. Let's start with what connects those four places. They're very different, and I'm curious about what brought you to the idea that there were similarities and important ones among those four places. 
Great. Yeah, I it's so important to me that they're different. So um, I'll just start by saying the problem of of inequality among people gets so much attention as it should. Um, but I think too often we forget that it inequality shows up among governments too, and that we've become a nation of local government haves and have nots. And the heart of this book is to really look at the have nots and specifically to look at places that have two problems that are connected to each other. They're poor and they're broke. So their people are poor and their governments are broke. And those are interconnected patterns. The governments are broke in part because they contain so much poverty and their people stay poor in part because their governments are broke. Um, and I think, you know, your show and your listeners, I think, have a better understanding of how these dynamics work together. Um, I feel like in Detroit, people have a more sophisticated understanding of why, for instance, when you're very low income, an absentee lights out local government uh, impacts you very mm -hmm. substantially. I mean, I'm picturing here the worst periods of DDOT, for instance, broke down buses, irregular service, people waiting endlessly in snowstorms. You know, it's been that much harder for Detroiters to keep jobs and arrive on time to work when this important part of the local government, basic public services is sort of shut down or, you know, retracted to this, um, this uh, minimalist core. And, uh, but, you know, we have this problem all over the country. We have it with respect to depleted 911 resources, with respect to shuttered libraries, with respect to water systems that are not funding um, adequate treatment. Um, and, uh, and so we have this this larger pattern of places that are poor but also broke. And those places range from rural to small town to big city urban like Detroit. Um, they can be nearly all white, nearly all black, mostly Latino, or in one of the places I profile, Stockton, the most diverse city in the United States. Um, and also they politically vary. So this is not a blue problem or a red problem or a purple problem. You can get this kind of breakdown in public services um, at all kinds of different, with all kinds of different political chemistry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I want to talk just a little about uh, the Great Recession, which is one of the biggest themes in the book. Um, talk about, in your view, how we're still trying to recover from that, both as individuals and uh, as individuals who are part of governments. Uh, where do we sit exactly in the aftermath of, of that chaos? Right. Um, I, in local government um, literature, sometimes we refer to the 2010 to 2020 period as the lost decade for mm. local governments. Just to capture exactly what you're saying, that the Great Recession has hung on in local government revenues much longer than it hung on in individual people's budgets and their household family budgets. Um, and that's partly because of the nature of the Great Recession as a housing crisis that reset um, uh, property values at a low point in um, after the subprime mortgage crisis. But it's also just about the longer um, tail of this uh, swollen inequality that we got after the Great Recession. So as many of your listeners appreciate, recovery from the Great Recession was really uneven. So we had a widening of individual inequality after the recession, and that has shown up in this problem. I'm writing about you know, this local government haves and have nots problem. And you look at a city like Detroit, which you know, some people from outside of Detroit look at the city as though the bankruptcy itself was just a kind of period at the end of a long um, decline, mm -hmm. just a kind of period at the end of the sentence. Um, but Detroit, as you know, and have have spoken about on this show, was also slammed in an acute shock by the recession itself. Michigan was too, you know, took a disproportionate share of the manufacturing job losses that came in the early 2000s. Um, and, and then in the Great Recession itself had just massive losses in municipal income tax revenues, 
um, sales tax revenues, and then, you know, a massive uh, drop off in state aid. So Detroit took this big cluster of fiscal shocks right in the Great Recession. Um, and the bankruptcy itself allowed the city to um, work out some of those problems, um, administratively at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but the Great Recession has hung on in in the larger sort of story of chronic poverty in the city and the the massive divestment of housing that took place um, in individual Detroiters' families. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to talk a little about a, a specific place that you point to in the book, Josephine County, Oregon, which I think is maybe among the places that you you chose here, the most different <laughs> from from Detroit. Um, and and get to the 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 kind of essence of the comparison you're making here. And I think it's really important. And it's really important for us here in Detroit. A lot of what you just said about what we have gone through here is, of course, tied to our history here. It's tied to our industrial history and the changes uh, from that. But it's also tied to our demographic history and to racism and to the, the, the changing of Detroit from white to black and all of the things that that meant for people who lived here in terms of uh, in terms of opportunity, in terms of economic activity, and of course, in terms of support from the outside. Uh, we, we see state support for Detroit begin to be controversial uh, at once it is a black city, uh, you know, managed by uh, black politics. And of course, over over 30 or 40 years, that becomes a really acute problem that culminates in, in the bankruptcy in many ways. But but someplace like Josephine County, Oregon, is experiencing the same kinds of problems that we have here, but has a really different history and a totally different uh, demographic. So first, talk about Josephine County in southwest Oregon and how how its fortunes kind of mirror what we're seeing in Detroit, but then also are caused by really different dynamics? Yeah, I I love that question. And I'm so glad to start with a place that's so different. Um, I'll make one quick note that the book really tries to allow these places to be their own story, because just as you put it beautifully, you can't tell Detroit's story without the history of race and racism in the region and in the larger um, uh, politics around and in Detroit. Um, And I wanted to be able to tell that so much of these places is Um, you know, communities are unique and they have their own history and that matters to people. And it's part of the scar tissue that they bring to local politics. It's part of the, um, the expectations that they bring. And the truth is that holding a place like Detroit with its history in the same book as an all white rural county in Southern Oregon seems bananas, right? (laughs) I I mean, it, it, the politics are so different. Um, Josephine County is a place that feels scarred by the northern spotted owl, you know, something that just <laughs> couldn't be farther away from the history behind Detroit. Um, and uh, I don't know if your listeners remember the spotted owl controversy, but this was a um, an endangered species sure. listing that happened in the early 90s that to this day uh, sits in southern Oregon's um, political vocabulary as this example of D.C. and environmental politicians um, taking jobs and really sacrificing local welfare for some kind of greater good. Um, and uh, and there was a larger story of manufacturing collapse that happened um, regardless of environmental law, the same kinds of globalization forces and automation forces that you guys are so well aware of in Michigan. Um, in uh, the wood products industry, they went through a lot of that too. Um, but the real focus of anger and rage in the in these western areas with big public lands is environmental law not labor or mm-hmm. 
um, global trade. Um, so anyway, so these places feel really different. And yet, if you zoom all the way back down to the ground, and you remember so vividly, I'm sure, and your listeners remember this period when Detroit was being, you know, almost um, uh, ridiculed, you know, Charlie Leduff doing his big spectacle with the 911 dispatch times mm-hmm. to report a burglary, and he's in his bathrobe, you know, three hours <laughs> later, the police come, and this larger... <laughs> sort of storytelling in the um, national consciousness about this tragic collapse in public services in Detroit, same thing was going on in Josephine. There were 911 calls with no dispatch available, including a very violent rape that was covered on NPR and a larger, um, uh, just a, a horrible story, and one after another in that larger region of Oregon, of um, of wait times of hours on end, including for violent crime, and a local sheriff's office that started um, running hours of operation between nine and five with a very limited crew, and anything that happened outside of five days a week, nine to five, you know, evening, whatever, on weekends, emergencies. Um, started a rerouting to the state police. And if they were hours away, then that was, you know, so be it. So this collapse in basic services um, was not unique to big cities. It was not unique to Detroit. Um, and, uh, And so I think we have to understand these problems as national challenges, even as we stay attuned to those local differences that really matter to people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think it's so hard for us sometimes in Detroit to think of other places and other people in other circumstances whose lives reflect the same kind of struggle or trauma that, that ours do. And, and of course, again, the differences are important and, and they matter. But the outcomes, the similarity of the outcomes is also really important. And it's super important, I think, to thinking of solutions that, that, uh, that if you can connect what's happening here to what's happening other places, uh, I think you come up with solutions that make different kinds of sense uh, than, than the kind of things that we often get, get tripped up over, really, uh, when we try to think of solutions um, right now. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this really wonderful conversation with Michelle Wilde Anderson, the author of The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America. And we want to start to hear from you, our listeners, on the phones and on social. What do you think local government should be doing to support residents in places like Detroit? What should cities like Detroit be working on to ensure that there is better opportunity, that people have stable jobs and better paychecks? Uh, Are you someone who lives here? Talk about what it's been like the last 12 or 15 years since the Great Recession, trying to keep your life together, trying to find opportunity for more. What do you think is driving the inequality that we see in the city? And what do you think local cities can be doing to mitigate all those problems? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you live here in the city of Detroit and think about the things that challenge us every day, every month, every year, it seems, what do you think about the way those challenges compare to things that people face in other parts of the country? And when you think of those... Where do you think those places are? Do you think of other big cities like 
Cleveland or Miami or Baltimore? Or do you think of a more broad spectrum of places that uh, that people might live? Someplace like Stockton, California, or Josephine County, Oregon, or Lawrence, Massachusetts. Michelle Wild Anderson is a Stanford law professor and author of The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America. And she looks at four places, including Detroit, that are all struggling with the same kinds of challenges, all caused by different dynamics, of course, but all landing those cities and the people who live in them in very similar circumstances without stable Uh, opportunities, without lots of economic activity, without the kind of government revenue to their municipalities that might make it possible to do things differently or do them better. We're talking this hour about the similarity between Detroit and these other places and the challenges that uh, we all face. We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Give us a call and tell us what you think of when you think about Detroit's challenges and whether you ever think about other cities that might be facing those challenges and what they're doing to meet those challenges. Talk about the places that you think we compare to. Talk about the places that you think we might learn from in terms of the way that they they meet these challenges. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Dan in Southfield. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Dan Martin here. Hey, you know, I find that uh, Detroit is a kind of a very uh, large, very small town. Mm-hmm. Like we're like the biggest. We say small that all town. the time, right? <laughs> right, we're the biggest small town on the internet. But here's the thing: we have fundamentally changed the nature of this city in recent years. This town used to have the largest black ownership of homes in the country. Yes. Now we this has changed. Okay. Now, we have two choices. We can accept the fact that these things have changed and work with what we have now, which is a culture and a beauty that is this area. Or we can get mad about it and want to go back to Ozzy and Harriet and want to go back to the way things were before this happened. Look, I, there's a lot of questions about why all this happened. But here's the thing it did. And here's the thing. We live now in the condition we're in. I work with a nonprofit in Detroit. I have to deal with reality on the ground, okay? I can't wish things were different. Hmm. They're not. I mean, Dan, I hear – I absolutely hear you, and I hear the frustration in in your voice and and whatever – I think uh, you're doing here in Detroit. I, I want to encourage you to keep keep doing it and keep being uh, optimistic that that we can solve it. I, I think it's really interesting, though, to think of this as a, a question between going forward and going back. I mean, the, the the home ownership thing is a huge indicator here in Detroit, and it fundamentally changes not just the current economic picture. But, of course, the future one, right? I mean, uh, American wealth is still built primarily through the, 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 the vehicle of home, home ownership. And so it's very difficult to think of a city that provides the kind of opportunity and economic growth that we might think of for Detroit where you don't have uh, enough home ownership um but but you're right it, it, it's there's probably no no point in in tantruming about about that because uh, we did lose it i think the question is what's next and and how do we get people to opportunity to more opportunity for that ownership uh, michelle wild anderson i wonder what your reaction is to what what dan's talking about here and what it looks like in in some of these other cities in your book Yeah, um, I think there's no question that Detroit's symbolism nationwide is as a place where working class people could 
own modest homes. I mean, it's not, Detroit really was this, has been really this capital of the American consciousness of a more middle-class society and, um, you know, a more modest version of, of prosperity. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I, don't think that we need to sort of go back to some kind of idealized mid-century version of that. But that side of Detroit has been replaced by what I think of now as really the capital of American inequality, of sort of what it means for a city to have this much poverty, you know, just intensive, concentrated poverty in such a huge um, share of the overall city. And um, and also have extremely concentrated wealth left in the city itself, but also in the um, land markets. So in my book, I really concentrated on this collapse in home ownership mm-hmm. as a way of just understanding what it, exactly what you said, Stephen. Sort of what is this going to mean for the recovery? of um, Detroit families going forward, of their basic household stability, of their, you know, their ability to sort of hold jobs, keep their kids in schools, um, and, uh, you know, sort of make it through uh, the um, larger uh, restructuring that's going on in the Michigan economy. Um, and so I wrote about this, this collapse that you describe in which Detroit transitions from being a majority homeownership city to being a majority tenant city. And I think understanding how that happened, understanding the degree to which it's still happening and there's still a massive um, land loss problem in Detroit um, is exceptionally important. And I wrote about some of the extraordinary people in Detroit who are really trying to understand what's driving this ongoing foreclosure crisis. What are we and what are we going to do about it? Most importantly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Dan, really appreciate the the call and the the, the thoughtful take on all of this. Uh, let's go next to Donald in Gross Point. Donald, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Stephen, very mm-hmm. much. I just finished uh, Ms. Anderson's book and uh, thought it was marvelous. I really uh, uh, really was struck by a number of things in it. Uh, yeah, so talk to me about what, what, uh, what you took away from it. Well, as I said, there are many, many things, many points, but uh, for Detroiters, um, among the things I was struck by is the Calvary's not coming. Um, you know, stop waiting for by uh, uh, you know, a magic project, magic corporation. Um, those things always disappoint. Um, you know, hipsters are nice, but they're never going to save a town. And invest in the people. Um, invest in the people who are living there now. Invest in the residents who are living there now. You know, in their training, in their housing, um, you know, in their education. Um you know, in their health care, if you invest in them, mm-hmm. other the corporations will come because they'll they'll say this is this is a wonderful place. Right, right. Donald, uh, really appreciate the call and uh, and your take on on the book. I'm glad you read the book even before uh, we had uh, Michelle here on on the show. Uh, Michelle, me too. Donald, <laughs> can I hire you to do my press? <laughs> That's right. Um, Michelle, in the book, you know, you make the case for for trust and cooperation and more funding. You know, dictated by the people who need it. It's it seems to me that's very much what Donald. Uh, is talking about, but but what does this look like on the ground, and how do people best organize with others to get these things that they need? Is it about is it about community organization? Is it about politics and government, or is it about some I guess combination of those things? Great, yeah. I mean, I want to start with that amazing line: "The cavalry is not coming," which actually came <laughs> from a different county in Oregon, and that was really their way of describing, um, you know, the federal government's not going to be here to just bail us out all of a sudden. Um, and in this longer um, uh, wait for it, um, you know, there may be changes down the road. There may be improvements to how the state or federal government spends money. 
But meanwhile, we, you know, here in town have to keep working, keep trying to um, improve on our problems. And I want to just have your listeners picture this amazing whiteboard in the mayor's office. And this is in Lawrence, Massachusetts now, um, where uh, Lawrence, just for quick background, is about 80,000 person town. It has been um, uh, blamed for the New England opioid crisis over and over again. And that crisis has just raged around it in the larger region. Um, And former President Trump and many governors in the region have blamed the city for being a hub for distribution of opioids to the um, crisis. And uh, but meanwhile, Lawrence families are taking this crisis on their streets. They've got encampments, runaways, addiction, all kinds of of gun violence related to drug trafficking. And so even though the larger addiction crisis has, you know, a huge national cause, you know, it's got Purdue, it's got the overprescription crisis, it's got all kinds of failures to invest in rehab in neighboring states. There's so many problems that are outside of Lawrence's control. But meanwhile, the city government has to do something now anyway, right? It's got to um, act today. And so here's the whiteboard. And this is Dan Rivera, the mayor of Lawrence at that time. And he had um, a mayoral conference room with a board on it. And it said, do something. Can we do it today? stop explaining the problem, start explaining the solution. And for Dan, and I think all the people written about in this book, including those in Detroit, um, they have to start acting now, um, uh, you know, not waiting for um, for some kind of outside solution. And meanwhile, just as Donald and you captured beautifully, um, once you rebuild those networks of trust and cooperation at the ground level, it's actually more likely that outsiders will come in and help. And I think you're seeing that in Detroit, um, the rebuilding of a lot of the civic infrastructure in the city, um, of nonprofits working together effectively, of neighborhoods being sewn back together with stronger neighborhood-based organizations. All of that connective tissue makes it easier for philanthropy to land investments in Detroit. It makes it easier for Michigan and D.C. to Mm -hmm. sort of trust that their dollars for Detroit will be sort of um, put to the people, sort of put to use in the city and so forth. So I think what I write about in the book is really these vicious cycles of decline that start to shift as people rebuild, um, you know, institutional uh, cooperation um, and build a, a virtuous cycle of progress where people want to be part of the solution and the momentum. Yeah. So so uh, you, you talk about some of the specific groups that you think in Detroit are trying to chart out this kind of equitable or, or just path. Let's talk about some of the people who you who you found, who you think are, are in that space. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, first of all, I'd just say, you know, that um, you know, if we just start with the problem of sort of why did Detroit transfer from this homeownership capital to being a majority tenant city? And we just look at that as the kind of centering concern in um, in the city. You start to realize that the first step that um, researchers and journalists had to go through was really figure out why. And I think to me, that was the exposed part. So this is, you know, scholars at University of Michigan and um, the uh, free press and the Detroit News and so many um, uh, professors at Wayne State and others really started to dig in and really figure out who's buying this land in the city? What? How are these auctions operating? What is the, um, the uh, larger pattern of occupancy, for instance, you know, are these homes that are being foreclosed upon homes that people live in and rely on? Or are they, you know, just um, properties in some kind of um, portfolio of ownership? So anyway, there's this phase that the city had to go through. And I think admirably really charted for the whole Rust Belt because Detroit's homeownership um, losses are are um, indicative of larger patterns of speculation and real estate concentration in the single family housing market nationwide. In fact, um, I, in 
the Stockton part of my book, I was writing about trauma and violence, but so many of the people in Stockton wanted to talk to me about the, um, the problem of speculation and predation in single family, um, in the single family housing market. They wanted solutions to the same problem that Detroit is working on. So I think that's the first step is people had to figure out like what's going on, what's driving this. And, um, uh, and then Detroit had this amazing ground effort, as you know, to um, really start to defend homes or really think about how to um, protect individual homeowners um, at the, you know, at points of emergency, you know, when they're on the cusp of, of um, losing their home. And here, the um, United Community Housing Coalition, UCHC, was pioneering incredible interventions to just stabilize people, um, hold back homes from the auctions, um, or uh, intervene to buy back homes for their owner occupants in the auctions themselves. Um, there were individuals um, and individual community-based organizations that even you know, helped buy homes back um, during this period of of emergency, um, and then you know larger the unlawful um, the coalition against unlawful tax foreclosures really worked on the larger problem of tax foreclosures. Why is this happening, and what are we going to do about it? And I think was really central to pushing Detroit city government to correct its assessments, at least going forward. Um, and, uh, you know, really do the first phase of, of um, rebalancing the city's property tax assessment so that it wouldn't fall so hard on Detroit homeowners. Sure. And here, Stephen, I just have to do a pitch for your show on August 11th. If your if folks listening now did not hear that, um, you know, your show about why, you know, Detroit's tax system is mm. broken some of the challenges in it is such important civic knowledge for people to just understand how their local government gets its money and how Michigan is, you know, in charge of a lot of those rules. Um, that's critical knowledge for voters to have and to really think about, you know, the solutions that are and are not in range. Mm. Um, so I think from that show, you know, and just in general, people can appreciate that there was a, you know, a big wave of, of activism, um, to try to uh, correct the in in extreme inequality in property taxation in the city, and that's an ongoing um, that's an ongoing effort there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it goes on, and I think the um, the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund and other smaller groups are pioneering these incredible models for buying really inexpensive surplus land and returning it to uh, black landowners in the city. Um, so these are really, those are reparations projects at some level. They're really trying to correct black land loss by returning these, yes. um, these uh, parcels to, to the people who have been with the city for decades and lost in this period of terrible turnover. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Michelle Wild Anderson about her book, uh, The Fight to Save the Town. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Gaston and Southfield, Jack and Flint. We'll start with you when we get back. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can always go to Twitter as well and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. tuning in. Our guest this hour is Michelle Wild Anderson. She is a Stanford law professor and author of The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America. It takes a look at four places in our country. One is Detroit. Uh, the others are Stockton, California, Josephine County, Oregon, Lawrence, Massachusetts, and of course, uh, Detroit itself. Uh, and it takes a look at how they are all struggling to get by and improve uh, the things that challenge not only the people who live in 
those cities, but the governments that represent those people and the difficulty they have with revenue and execution of policy that would give them more opportunity, would give them more stable employment and economic activity and all of the things that we have lost so much of here in the city of Detroit. Uh, We're having a really great conversation with you as well on the phones and on social. If you want to join, give us a call and tell us what you make of the problems that we have in Detroit and what we might learn from other places. What are the places that you think of when you think of us borrowing perhaps uh, best practices or thinking about things differently? Uh, As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to uh, Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation uh, that way. Let's go next to Jack in Flint. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Good uh-huh. morning. Um, well, yeah, I just want to say that, you know, Detroit, I'm from Flint, Michigan, and uh, Flint, Detroit have, you know, always had a certain kind of kinship uh, with each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, as much positive, uh, amazing things that are shared, uh, I feel like we also share a lot of uh, very similar issues um, as well. And um, I think in some ways it's even more glaring uh, in Flint because we're, you know, which much smaller uh, fishbowl, so to speak. Um, and one of the biggest problems uh, that I see is is really the sense of, like, gatekeeping. I mean, we have some, some private business owners and some institutions um, in town that just wield outsized, uh, you know, power and influence over the direction and the makeup of the city. And, you know, I, it's you can't help but just, Acknowledge the fact that like race is such a, and the disconnect uh, to, the, to the makeup of the city is such a huge issue with it all. You know, it's generally mostly old white men that are holding the real estate that that you know own or have interest in a lot of the businesses and everything, and they're building this sort of version of Flint that is so completely disconnected to the the actual community itself. You know, for a uh, our city which has a population of, of uh, roughly 60 percent black people. Um, you know, you, you would expect downtown to be a lot more diverse and vibrant, maybe looking more akin to, to Detroit or even Atlanta, but instead it looks like, you know, uh, auspiciously like the suburbs where a lot of these owners, like, come from. And so, you know, to me, uh, uh, it was spoke about earlier, but I, I can't speak to it enough that, like, power sharing is such a huge, huge part of the solution here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, the power is in the people, and we're the ones that are still here throughout, you know, all the issues and anything that goes on through thick and thin. Um, you know, we're the heartbeat of the community. And, uh, you know, if like one thing that I, that, that is very common, uh, you know, amongst the black and brown communities is that we don't feel welcome downtown because we don't see the representation there. We're not part of like the decision making of the businesses or anything like that. So, yeah. um, so yeah, I think, I think, you know, just really removing that line between the powers that be and actually engaging the community and seeing what kind and collaborating on, on building a certain kind of type of city and facilities and, uh, things that that uh, that we want uh, is really the key to the solve. Yeah, Jack, uh, I really love that you called, and I love that you're representing Flint at least uh, in this in this conversation, because of course, uh, you know, the, the the challenges there are at least as uh, as foreboding as the what the, the ones we have here in Detroit, and of course, you also have the water crisis to still recover from, and and everyone should should remember that even though we have technically fixed what was wrong with the water supply in Flint and uh, there is a settlement for for the people of Flint that we, we are a long way from actually uh, fixing that issue and and dealing with the long-standing effects of that issue that is something that's going to visit on the people of Flint and on that community for decades, and none of us should be content with what's already been done. We should all be thinking about what more we need to add to it. Uh, Michelle, uh, I would love to have you react to, to, to what Jack's saying and this idea of, again, how you engage the people who live in, in, in these cities uh, in the solution-making. I mean, it, it sounds like he's absolutely uh, got his finger on it there in Flint. Exactly. I mean, Jack, I just want to put two exclamation marks after your point. I just think it's so important that we really look at that as an independent 
problem that local government, um, we have very, we have falling rates of voter turnout. And when cities have cycled through periods of mismanagement, you know, whether it's a, a mayor who, you know, gets caught with their hand in the cookie jar or, you know, worse, and some cities, you know, run out of town in handcuffs, the larger, um, uh, degradation of people's belief in government is its own kind of harm. You know, people start to disengage. And in that period, um, uh, you know, people keep running the government. There's a certain amount of machine politics or political capture that continues to happen, especially mm -hmm. for real estate um, interests. And, um, and I say that with no you know, disdain for real estate itself. It's just that that's one factor among many that has to be really considered and held as an objective of local government. It can't, real estate development and real estate profits can't be the only sort of motivating force for what local government does for its people. So you get these terrible distortions in politics when people really withdraw. And the answer to that, just like Jack said it, is re-engagement. There has to be, um, I think, almost block level and neighborhood level community organizing that happens to have people learning about their government, learning how to be activists in their local government, um, and how to really pull local government back to its residents. And for Flint and Detroit, I think that really means pulling local government toward the neighborhoods. That means, you know, how do you really activate the demand side of, of voting, you know, to really demand um, administrative attention, admand, demand resources, demand leadership over the really hard challenges facing the neighborhoods. Um, you know, as many of your listeners may appreciate, before the Flint water crisis, I think it's fair to say that Flint was going through a downtown revival that was um, really impressive, you know, and but it had this same structural problem that I think Detroit's downtown revival does, which as a, a pastor put it to me in Flint, you know, years ago, um, uh, you know, downtown won't trickle down, that the, the sort of recovery of this downtown core is not actually um, permeating the chronic poverty and the, the legacy of intense racial segregation in the neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, again, it's just about um, building that community power. The, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, that whole story I tell in the book is really about how to do that, um, how a, a community, the Latino community in Lawrence really began to organize and pull government toward the um, overwhelming majority of the city, which was now Latino, mm -hmm. and pull it away from the kind of old machine that had always run Lawrence. That brought more city jobs toward people, but more, in, including in policing, where there was a lot of racial conflict in policing. They managed to turn the police force into a, um, a you know, a racial bot, a body that looked racially more like the residents of the city itself, um, but also just more broadly of just really investing in residents and their adult education needs, in their housing needs, um, and in uh, anti-violence strategies in in the um, in the neighborhoods. Um, so I think that that work is is critically important, and it's slow. It's slower than you know ribbon cutting on a new hotel, um, but uh, but it's. It's not as slow as people think. <laughs> we just don't. Uh, we don't pay enough attention to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Jack, uh, really appreciate the call uh, and and that look at Flint. Uh, let's go to Stephanie in Detroit. Stephanie, we've only got a couple minutes left, but uh, go ahead. Okay, my name is Stephanie, and I'm a project manager for Tiny Homes. Mm. And I don't know if your guest is even aware of what we're doing in Detroit, Cass Community Social Services, sure. in building tiny homes. Yeah. And it is a community where you rent your house for seven years and then you own it. And it is just uh, an unbelievable community. And I am just, every day, I can't believe how many people in Detroit are not aware of the Tiny Homes Project. Yeah, you know, uh, Stephanie, of course, we've had... Faith Fowler, uh, right. who heads Cast Community Services on the on the show, and we've talked about uh, the Tiny Home Project and all the other 
all the other things that Faith is up to. But I think you're right that this is a project that often flies under the radar here. And, you know, the, the, the thing I like about it is is that long-term vision that it has. It's not just trying to find shelter for people who don't have it or a home for people who are struggling to have one. It's deeding them with that opportunity to own. And, you know, as we've been talking about this hour, we are in a we are in a circumstance in this city where we don't have enough home ownership and there aren't a lot of easy ways to get people to that point. Um, and, and that tiny home project, I know, is is uh, is one of the pushbacks against it. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that project, Michelle, but it is. It is one of these little projects in a community where we're trying to, I guess, you know, push back against the, the, the larger dynamics that we face. Yeah, I mean, Stephanie, thank you so much. That's so it's wonderful to hear your voice sort of speaking for it. And um, I'll have to come visit you next time I'm in Detroit and see some of the project. Um, but it's also a reminder that, um, which I think, you know, the Detroiters listening don't need a reminder of this, but outsiders who look at Detroit, I think very much do. It is very confusing to outsiders that Detroit has so many unhoused people when the thing that you're most famous for is excess land and, you know, a bunch (laughs) of unused houses, you know, and I think people should really look at that as kind of a puzzle. Like, how could that be? And I think that's really what this, um, you know, larger work has been in so many of these incredible advocates in Detroit is really figuring out what's driving displacement in a place that has this much land. And um, and I think then you start to really see that the problem is about law and ownership and wealth and not a problem of availability. That's right. Land, you know, and so it becomes a, a, a harder problem to sort of understand and to solve. Um, but you guys are pioneering those problems because I could do a whole nother hour, Stephen, about <laughs> how Detroit's land market and its particular version of inequality is actually has some really important things in common with where I'm sitting right now in San Francisco, which is understood as a really strong city, you know, has nothing in common on the surface with Detroit um, in some ways. And yet, you know, we have very similar. Yeah, Michelle, I don't I don't I don't mean to cut you off, but we are out of time. Michelle, this was so great. I really appreciate it spending the time with us and congratulations uh, on the book thank you so much for having me and thanks to your guests yeah all right come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with analyst alex alsop about the wayne county tax foreclosure auction and a better way to make sure people stay in their homes and clean up blight here in detroit this is 1019 wdetfm detroit's npr station your connection to news music and conversation we'll talk again tomorrow